my arm. <sighs> Allie. I know. I, <laughs> I just, I can't say how sorry I am because I feel like you have been really having a week. I mean, you've, everyone's been having a year. But uh, yeah, August came in hot. August, <laughs> August came in hot and spicy. Um, producer got bit by a dog. You fractured your wrist vis-a-vis -vis the same dog. <laughs> we sound like we've been abused. I know. Dog. Um, but also, like, I got there and they were like, oh, did you, you know, to the patient first. And they're like, oh, did you hurt your arm at work? And I was like, no, I was at my house last night. And they're like looking at me and like oh my gosh they're oh, gonna no. ask me like if my husband did it which is a serious problem it is a serious um, problem but i don't have any prior breaks in my wrists. well that's so, good yeah it's not like they can look back in my file and be like oh she's definitely a woman of abuse right um but this is episode 90 it's episode 90 i'm very excited for this particular episode it's the season finale of season six crazy we have now officially been recording for two full years because yeah. we started two augusts ago and then started releasing in november yes and i am just so excited because i love that we're finishing our sixth season by talking about two women who are known as the first feminists feminists we're, we're talking about feminists on a feminist podcast can you believe it I can't. we're crazy <laughs> and we are here to talk about this yes on her street. On the rock. <laughs> we were so topical today. We were. Um, it's a podcast about famous women in history. And we talk about good women, bad women, fictional women, and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. Absolutely. But just so you know, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. Absolutely not. But we are pretty good drinkers by this point. Yeah. <laughs> and we are pretty good at looking up incorrect information online oh yes absolutely uh -huh. um sometimes there are two versions of a story and we just have to pick one whether it's true or false or we tell you both or we tell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some people say well other people say <laughs> um it's just a real hodgepodge of information but just we're so excited to have you on this journey with us today and we're glad you like it yes supposedly but you might be getting an x-ray on your wrist just like like ali had to do this week wait do you know your recovery time uh, I don't know, a couple weeks, okay. six weeks, probably. Right? Okay. Hairline fracture, fine. small okay. fracture. That's good. Um, but yeah, you might be getting an x-ray on your wrist. I don't know why you're listening to a podcast during that time. I don't know if cell phones are allowed in the x-ray room. Probably not. Maybe you snuck it in. Who knows? But the machine's going. You can't really use the internet. So we need to tell you what these women look like. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you covering tonight and what does she look like? Well, I'm doing uh, the world's most famous feminist. Yes. <laughs> Gloria Steinem. <laughs> and she's currently 86 years old. Gloria is 5'9". She's a woman with dirty blonde hair parted in the middle and worn straight down in the classic 1970s style. She has kind of a square face with kind eyes and prominent lips. Mm. She looks very fit. And some of my favorite outfits are outfits of her in the 70s and 80s where there's just like these bizarre patterns and like yes. weird looking clothes that I just adore on her. Um, and sometimes she's wearing glasses, sometimes not. Now in her 80s, like since her 60s, 70s and 80s in age, she's been wearing like dressy casual. Like she'll mm. wear like a nice loose fitting button down with yeah. like some tight pants. It's really cute. But I don't think there's any way to separate Gloria 
like her physical appearance from who she is so i would just say she looks like a badass yeah she definitely does <laughs> like when i think of her i can't think of anything but badass so yeah i also always think of her with like her glasses on and she like tucks the two front pieces like into her yeah. glasses just very interesting choice i feel like it's she's like that's streamlined baby I need to read because I'm a freaking journalist. I don't want to keep so tucking my hair I can't behind tuck my ears. My hair. No time and I for certainly it. can't wear a ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Who does your person look like? I am doing Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, Mary had pale skin with rosy cheeks and what appeared to be kind of light blonde hair, which sometimes looked very gray. She had an oval face with a nearly hooked nose it's kind of like go in there but not like a full-on hook and backs off a little. Mm -hmm. and a soft but serious look on her face and in her most famous portrait she kind of has like a black beret on the back of her head and she's wearing like a white billowy dress in others she has um like super white pillowy hair which is kind of weird and like a big blue like like headband and she kind of has a crazed look on her face like she's like looking at a book like ah like don't take it away from me um but i like the one with the white outfit best i think that's her best look well i think that's the one where people always mistake it for mary shelley if maybe you, if you type in it is mary wilsoncraft but yes. if you type in mary shelley that portrait comes up as yes. well but mm -hmm. if that's not her not her uh-uh uh -huh. interesting yes so I'm excited to get into our first drink tonight. Okay. What are we about to drink, Allie? It's called Whatever the Hell I Want to Do with My Life. <laughs> uh, and it is a hodgepodge of things because I just <laughs> threw everything in a glass. I did an ounce of vodka for the martini, an ounce of triple sec for the margarita, uh, threw in some salt for a salty lady. Okay. Three ounces of orange juice from a screwdriver. One dash of bitters from an old fashioned, and the most important ingredients is a half an ounce of male tears. I love it. Did you collect them from producer? When I did. I got did. very bad news today. When, when he got bit by a dog. <laughs> Cheers. Mm. It's refreshing. Refreshing, and I like that it really does taste like there's tears on top. Uh huh. Because it of that really salt, does. right? <laughs> The salt and the bitters. Because it's not like, um, because there's no like tequila in it, the salt doesn't play off the tequila. So it literally just feels like you're drinking men's tears. Oh, yeah. And I love that. <laughs> I feel like that's what this cocktail should be called. Men's tears. <laughs> it's called whatever the hell I want to do with my life. Okay. So this is intimidating. And it was even intimidating for me doing the research because I feel like you know a lot about Gloria Steinem. I don't know as much as I should. Okay. Um, I definitely like studied her a lot, but it's one of those things where like, again, she spent her whole life like giving speeches and writing things. So I just feel like, you know who she is, you know, she was important. Right. Like, <laughs> and it's why I would like to enact the Madonna clause here. Absolutely. I give you full permission to enact that clause. Because I'm going to miss some of your favorite things. Yeah. And there's a moment in this uh, story where I just list 15 things she was an activist. Of. <laughs> I was like, I can't get it all. And I was, I was really blown away by her, as I knew I would be. Yeah. But um, I'm going to miss some of your stuff. So yeah. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> Most of this information was from podcasts and YouTubes. Because she gets on 
every podcast. She still does interviews That's and they're amazing. so good. So you can listen to hours upon hours of interviews with her on both of those places. And then obviously she writes books about her life. The most recent book about her life is called My Life on the Road from 2015. And I didn't read the whole thing, but I wrote, read like big sections of it, especially yeah. in places where I was like, I don't really understand her thought process in this time in her life. Mm. So are you ready? I'm ready. For episode 90, season finale, The World's Most Famous Feminist. Yes. Mm. And I'm just excited, too, because, like, the only couple of things I, like, really know about her yeah. are, like, that she was a feminist, she was a journalist, and, like, she is played by Rose Byrne in an upcoming movie, or mm -hmm. Mis Mistress, Mistress America, is that mm -hmm. what it's called? Um, and that she wrote this, like, huge expose on Hugh Hefner and In a Bunny's Tale. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear more about that story, too. Yeah. It's, it's good. And I just kind of threw it all together. <laughs> Great. Okay. So... Gloria Steinem was born March 25th, 1934 in Toledo, Ohio. 1934. Yeah. It just sounds so old. <laughs> it does. Thanks. So when you listen to this, Gloria, you're I'm so, so sorry. old. Um, and thank you for all you've done. So uh, her parents were Ruth and Leo Steinem. Her mom was of German and Scottish descent, and her dad was of Jewish descent, a hmm. son of immigrants from Germany. Oh. So, and this is 1934 that she's born. Wow. So her dad's mom, or her paternal grandmother, was Pauline Perlman Steinem, who helped to actually rescue families from the what? Holocaust. So her grandmother. That's so cool. It is cool. And that grandmother went on to be in the United States, a chairwoman of the National Women's Suffrage Association, and then a delegate to the International Council of Women and the first woman to be elected to the Toledo Board of Education. So feminism is just in her bones. It literally is seeping through <laughs> her, <laughs> along with male tears. And <laughs> Gloria had like a really abnormal childhood. So she never went to a full year of school until she was 13. What? So they traveled around during the years. They were based in Toledo. She would start the school year, but they lived in like a trailer. Um, so when it would get cold, they would just pack up and drive south in their trailer. And her dad was a traveling antiques dealer. What? So she spent her childhood just like driving across the country, not going to school. So she's basically living the life of like antiques roadshow. Yes. That's so cool. As a child. <laughs> and her mother, although her parents were together at this time, before Gloria was born, when her mother was 34, she had experienced like a nervous breakdown. Mm. And this caused her to have occasional like delusional fantasies that would sometimes turn violent. Ooh. So her mom struggled with mental illness all during her life and her childhood. So um, what she says about it is that from what she heard, her mother changed from a fun loving woman to someone who was really afraid to be alone. And during Gloria's life, her mom spent long periods of time in and out of sanatoriums for the mentally ill. Oh, no. Yeah, so it was a really hard situation. When Gloria was 10, her parents split up, and her dad went to California to find work, and she stayed with her mother in Toledo. So she's kind of living in this household where her mom's not getting proper treatment. Yeah. Um, 
And her dad's income, of course, hadn't been much, but with him gone, it was even worse because her mom couldn't get a job because she wasn't being treated for her mental illness. So Gloria later said that this societal treatment of her mother was pivotal in understanding social injustice. Mm. Like, I see what you're doing, and doctors are discounting her because she's a woman, and employees are, employers are saying she's hysterical because she's a woman, but like... no one's even like trying so um it was interesting that this starts at a very young age for her um this is a fun fact i thought i would throw in here during this time in gloria's life she took up tap dancing (gasps) i love that which is also like my favorite thing so like the next shirley temple yeah she's a very talented tap dancer and she says that's what she wanted to do because when you're a a little girl in a you know lower income family in a situation like this showbiz seems like the only way out yeah um the same way little boys are like i want to be a professional athlete yeah it's like girls are like i'm gonna be a performer so she yeah. took she really she took ballet as well but she was really really um into tap so now Gloria's in high school. She's attending year-round school finally. But her first several years are in school in Toledo, which she described as pretty unstructured in general. <laughs> like the Ohio high school, not great. I don't know about you now, Toledo, so sorry. Uh, there were many students whose parents didn't speak English and those kids were embarrassed about it. Ooh. There were many students who had never been out of Toledo altogether, so they had no experience with you know the country and she obviously did she had to learn to fit in because she was so used to talking to adults that her sarcasm would like hurt the kids feelings um but in general she said she was pretty normal in high school she made friends she had sleepovers she dated boys she was like a normal teenager she was excellent in her literature courses because all she did when she traveled around with her parents was read but she was horrible at math and Mm. still is because that's like something that builds on itself from elementary school and she just wasn't taught math yeah so that was a big struggle then in her senior year i'm assuming i don't know this for sure but i'm assuming her mom is having like about in a hospital Mm -hmm. because she moves in with her older sister who's about nine to ten years her senior and her older sister suzanne steinem patch lived in washington dc so now she's like permanently leaving toledo to live with her sister on the east coast Gloria attends Western High School in D.C. for her final year, her senior year, and got a totally different view of high school. She's like, this is not unstructured schooling. These kids are college prep kids. They're taking, like, college practice exams over and over again to make sure they can get the best score possible. And she was like, this is not the type of people, like, she said in Toledo, we would, like, dance during our lunch break and, like, just hang out. And in D.C., it was, like, everybody's studying. I can't even imagine the culture shock, especially back then. The Midwest what, to the like East Coast. The 40s, yeah. like early fi- like Yeah, the 50s. The probably, 50s, yeah. yeah. She was born in 39, so the 50s. Yeah. What an insane time to go from the Midwest to the East Coast. Yeah. Especially D.C. And because, for your senior year. Yeah. Because D.C. really is such a different place than the rest of the world <laughs> mm-hmm. it's its own little bag of tricks yes and it's a horrible cesspool and i hate driving there uh, i was actually just around there today and i was so angry because i had a job in this apartment building outside of dc and they only allowed 
you to pay for one hour at a time on this parking. So you had to keep going back? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. It didn't connect to the internet? No apps? Uh, there definitely was, but like, I'm not going to stand there and do it. I'm not going to download an entire app just to pay for parking for one job. So I did get a ticket the first day. Uh, whatever. (laughs) So curse that place. Just one ticket. Gosh, DC. Why'd you take (laughs) some of Maryland's land? Uh, Um, so she then applies for Smith college and gets in. Wow. And she says she believes that she was a legacy acceptance because her older sister went there and she had been turned down from other colleges. Like she applied to Cornell and stuff like that. So she majored in government and she says everybody was wearing board shorts, but she hates them and thinks they're ugly. So she wore jeans and penny loafers. (laughs) Uh, She was part of Phi Beta Kappa. And also wouldn't you want to be a fly on the wall for this? While Gloria Steinem was going to Smith College, so was Sylvia Plath. What? Can you believe that? I can't believe that. They didn't That's insane. know each other and they weren't like friends. What's also crazy about them going to school at the same time is that I also think of them not existing at the same time because, yes. I, and I'm guessing that's because Sylvia Plath like killed herself it's yeah. like a fairly young age so like we never saw her really in like to age yeah the aging. 60s and 70s you know like i because i always think of gloria from that time period you know like in her freaking bell bottoms and turtlenecks uh-huh. you know like, and you. and i just feel like sylvia is forever in like the 50s she's like frozen in time yeah yeah so that is really crazy i know mm. i heard that actually on the podcast where sophia bush interviewed her and it was actually, like a really cool interview i, I like sophia bush I too mm. i would suggest that one it was a cool <laughs> interview because she's like you know as someone in the public eye and then yeah. like it was a really cool back and forth also her voice is so interesting <sighs> it's so good to listen to yeah mm. how does everybody like my radio voice <laughs> <laughs> oh man okay so while at smith Gloria starts dating a man 10 years her senior, who she says is still the most handsome man she's ever met, to whom she becomes engaged to be married. She's like 20, early 20s. College and careers at that time were placeholders for when women would go to be wives and mothers. And realizing this, she feels this urge to escape. So at 22 years old, she graduates, gets what I understand to be a graduate fellowship, and leaves the country. Where does she go? She says to escape the engagement. She first lands in London. Uh, This is 1957. She's 22. She's trying to get her visa to India. (gasps) I've been there. You're Gloria. You're Gloria Steinem I'm just Jr. like Gloria Steinem. You are changing the world. Um, so you know how hard it is to get a visa to India. Um, <laughs> yes, I do. And the horribleness of DC is a big part of that story. And that podcast is on our Patreon. I put the one up with me, you, and Mora, and producer. Ah! So if anybody wants to listen to that on our Patreon, you can go and get that. You really should. It's a great story. Um, <laughs> I just... I also like I was thinking too, like, because I'm so lucky that I am close to DC, DC. And because I literally had to go to the India consulate to right, get listen, my visa. <laughs> first, you hate DC. Now you feel lucky okay, to be close okay, to it. Okay. I mean, it's kind of like, I'm not a heavy hitter or anything, but you just contradicted yourself. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like we do always on this podcast. Oh, also, before I get any farther, I know Sylvia Plath 
we haven't done on this podcast yet, but I want you to see how many alums are in this story. Ooh. So okay. Keep a, little, keep a little tally marks. We haven't hit any I'll keep yet, a check but mark um, list. we'll get there. Okay. So she's in London. She's trying to get a visa and she finds out she's pregnant with her ex-fiance's baby. Now she feels more trapped than ever. She goes and finds a doctor who is willing to break the law for her and uh, help with an abortion procedure. At this time in London, abortion was only legal if birthing the child would endanger the health of the mother. And that was not the case. In 2015, in her book, she dedicated it to him and says that this man went out on a limb for a 22-year-old American girl who had just broken off an engagement and is trying to make her way to India. Oh, my gosh. And um, he made her promise two things. Don't tell anyone my name, which his name's Dr. John Sharp. (laughs) So (laughs) that didn't work. Um, But second, do what you want to do with your life. Wow. Was his second thing. So he went out on a limb to just change this woman's life. That's amazing. And now she's changed all of our lives. Yeah. Um. So after her abortion, she gets her visa to go to India and just left. And she lives in India for two years. Wow. Moving around the country, working as a fellow where she was like helping as a law clerk to a chief justice of India at the time. And like people ask her, they're like, where'd you land? What were you doing in India? Where were you going? What was the plan? And she's like, I don't know (laughs) what the plan was. I had no plan. (laughs) Um, just over and over again, she calls what happens in her life an accident. She's like, I just kept showing up. <laughs> like Things kept happening. Um, so when she returns to the U.S., she says she was definitely a pain in the ass, telling everyone how to live and what the world was like. But it opened her eyes to classism and racism and sexism in a different way. Oh, my gosh. What do you call that? You had a perfect name for it. The freshman something. Oh, the, um, sm- oh my gosh. Or the... <laughs> College smug. College smugness. Yes. College smug. Oh my gosh. It hit me like a ton of bricks. It hits everyone. Because it hits you everyone. And I knew about it going in. And I was like, that's not gonna happen to me. Mm-hmm. And then by my second semester, I was like, I'm dating a vegan. I'm a women's studies major. <laughs> I don't eat meat anymore. Forget you. <laughs> It's. Uh, I mean, it happens to everybody because you just feel so woke for like the first time. You feel oh, independent too absolutely. for the first time ever. Um, and again, all those things that I went through were fantastic. Yeah, you know, no shame to vegans and stuff because yeah. it it was a really great experience. But I definitely fell and uh, yeah, I fell hardcore into yeah. it, especially when you're a pain in the ass to everybody around you, and absolutely. not you specifically. But when like people go through that, they'll be like, Actually, Do you even know what the IRS does? Have you even heard of apartheid? <laughs> Exactly. Um, and that'll be in this story. So, <laughs> so good segue. Um, when she returns to the U.S., she goes to New York City. And she just said, you know, it's where she felt like she needed to be. Like, New York City's popping. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like where you got to go if you're going to make something of yourself. Um, no shade to people who make something of themselves in Idaho. Just <laughs> New York's where it's at. So... Um, she went around just to be a freelance writer. She said, my dad never had a job and she was accustomed to living like that. So I can bounce around. I can live paycheck to paycheck. It doesn't bother me. So female freelance reporters usually worked on women's pieces. This brings me back to the Nellie Bly episode where she's Mm. just like, I'm told to do recipes and children and clothing and marriage. And that's like my whole job. Yeah. Um, she also served though as director of the independent research service which is an organization that was secretly funded by the cia what she worked 
for the CIA. <sighs> and crazy. it is so hard to find articles explaining this, but she's been outspoken about it, even though most people that work for the CIA are really tight-lipped. Mm -hmm. And she caught a lot of flack when people found out about it in, like, the 60s. And she's like, look, the agency was completely different from its image. It was liberal and nonviolent and honorable. And she was, like, trying to sponsor a youth movement to get these kids to this, like, social reform gathering. But the gathering was funded by the Soviet Union. So it was more like a CIA operative, like, let's see what's happening in... Russia, because this mm -hmm. is the Cold War era. I don't know. She was getting monetary funding from the CIA at some point. Okay. So that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> then she's hired by Warren Publishing, who also produced Mad Magazine. Uh, and they're making a magazine called Help, and she's their first female employee to do the women's stuff. Also, if you're hearing dogs, again, we're not in a studio <laughs> this week. Maybe next week, cross our fingers. Yes. We're in a safari-themed room sitting in wicker thrones in my childhood home. And there's a zebra. A very angry zebra. Staring who's at also cross-eyed. Did you... Have you ever looked at his face? <laughs> <laughs> I love him. We'll have to put a picture of him. We have to. He uh, looks so mad. Yeah. He's great. <laughs> okay. Um, where am I? Okay. First female employee for Help Magazine. So... After this happens, like, finally her journalism career breaks. The editor of Esquire magazine gave her a chance as a freelance writer to write a piece about a brand new exciting thing, the pill, <gasps> contraception. She goes, this is her first serious assignment. She, you know, writes the piece. She thinks it's great. She brings it to the editor and he reads it and he's like, great, you managed to make sex boring. Go rewrite it. <laughs> She's like, oh, man. So she goes and rewrites it and brings it back. And what results is an article that comes out in 1962 about how women are forced to choose between careers and marriage or motherhood. And this this article actually um, preceded the book The Feminine Mystique, which mm. came out a year later, mm -hmm. which had very similar themes. Um, so this is the very early 60s. Now things are getting really serious and this is the article you referenced earlier in 1963 while she was freelancing for show magazine gloria did a piece that would make her extremely famous and typecast her for a while as far as investigative journalism goes this was it she which is obviously when we talked about again in the nelly bly episode mm -hmm. that was invented by her and now gloria steinem is doing it um she goes undercover, really, and gets a job as a Playboy bunny working in the New York Playboy Club. And she works there uh, for a long period of time, waiting tables. Uh, her resulting article on the treatment of girls was called A Bunny Tale, and it is an expose about Hugh Hefner, who she says she does not know how that man ever got one ounce of respect. She hates him. Hates him. And she's saying that in her 80s to people who are interviewing her. Right. Yeah. Like she has held that belief for a very long time. Yeah, she thinks he is like Satan incarnate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Gloria maintains that she's very proud of the piece, although it, she's kind of annoyed by it. It's kind of like a one hit wonder kind of oh, piece yeah. where on the good side, it exposed the sexual demands on these young girls that were skirting on the edge of illegal the sexist treatment of these women and the working conditions and what they were being asked to do, a lot of that changed because of this article. Um, 
on the bad side she was unable to find work for a while because she was sexualized because like the oh. cover story is her in a bunny suit and she actually did wear that there yeah. and she wore it um so now in most people's brains she was a playboy bunny but she also felt tortured saying i'm not a playboy bunny because she didn't want to make it seem like she thought she was better than those girls like oh, oh hire me i'm smart i'm not i, I would never actually, actually do that right so yeah. she did also as a feminist didn't want to downplay that they had the right to choose that job yeah. so she was very tortured by that article for a very very long time yeah and we should um we should do a whole episode on the history of the playboy bunny absolutely because i think that's a great great one yeah because i know one of the things that i heard that she wrote about was like they would get like demerits and have like their pay cut if like their ears were crooked or something like that or they served a drink with the wrong hand and it was like all these things were like it's like we're, now I'm making no money and I'm being degraded and I've been serving in a bunny suit and high heels for eight hours. Yeah, and I, I have a step cousin who worked at Hooters for a long time. And mm -hmm. if your nail polish was chipped, they'd send you home. Oh, my god. So like you can't work this shift. That's bananas. It is bananas. Uh, I don't know what's going on there, but I think that would be great. And I think we should do the Playboy bunnies whenever we do the American Girl dolls. <gasps> we should pair them up. Yes, we should. Somebody request that for next season. Somebody already <laughs> requested American Girl Dolls. That's oh, on the list. Perfect. So we'll just throw one in and say yes. you requested it. Um, <laughs> we'll lie. <laughs> on air, we'll lie. We can't lie. Um, okay. So in the meantime, between trying to find jobs, she's like, I can't find work. But in the meantime, she interviews John Lennon for Cosmo. Oh, my God. Excuse me. What I get. Do we get to put Nellie, Nellie Bly as somebody? Is that a is that a yes. her story person? And then can we say John Lennon because of the Yoko Ono episode? Absolutely. Okay, good. So we're up to two. This is our podcast. We can do whatever we want. Oh, right. Like your cocktail says, we can do whatever the hell we want mm -hmm. <laughs> with our lives. <laughs> so <laughs> finally, four years later, she lands a spot at New York Magazine, and she was sent to cover an abortion speakout in Greenwich Village, which is with where Marsha P. Johnson lives. Yes. Can we throw that in? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, three. Um, while there, she felt a click. From that moment on, she began her life as an active feminist. She mm. said, for so long, I would sit and try to sit up and count how old my baby would be and try to make myself feel guilty, but I just couldn't feel guilty, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And she comes to the conclusion that... If men could get pregnant, abortion wouldn't just be legal. It would be a sacrament. Absolutely. Like, it would be, be widely available. Right. At, to, to everyone all the time. Yeah. Sunday morning worship. So only a few years later, in 1972, Gloria, along with several women, co-found the feminist-themed Miss Magazine, which is still published today. It starts as a special edition of the New York Magazine, and they fund the first issue because Miss Magazine is a foundation. It's kind of like Nat Geo, where it's not yeah. a corporation. It's mm -hmm. more like a nonprofit, but she doesn't call it that. She calls it a foundation. Okay. Um, they start with 300,000 test copies of the magazine for the entire nation, and it sells out in eight days. Wow. 
Within weeks, they have 26,000 subscriptions to Miss Magazine. The first issue is very recognizable. I'm sure you've seen the cover. It has the woman on the front that looks like Vishnu, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because she lived in India, obviously. She's blue and has eight arms, and there's a baby in her stomach, and each of the eight arms is holding something that a woman has to deal with. The art actually looks very Frida Kahlo. Let's add that to our ticker. (laughs) (laughs) So many women. (laughs) listen i just know all the things now i have my doctorate now in women's studies (laughs) i really don't um so also one of the women who founded or co-founded miss magazine with her is dorothy Pittman hughes who my favorite pictures of gloria steinem are them protesting Mm. together because there's pictures of them protesting together in the like 50s and 60s and Mm -hmm. then now yeah, which is it's just adorable and I love it. And it just points out, again, the importance of female friendship. So here's where this magazine should be noted. There were lots of female magazines already out at the time, but there's two types. There's the fe- female magazine that's for the working woman. Uh, articles about how to balance, how to go to work, where to get jobs, how to do interviews. And then there is magazines for mothers and housewives and homemakers and she wanted Miss Magazine to have both sets of stories. She wanted it to be for the whole woman. Um, that was very important to her, which is why, obviously, subscriptions skyrocketed. It helped women to not only understand themselves and help themselves out, but also to understand one another. And this is where I think Gloria gets a bad rap. She didn't have children, and um, she works, and she didn't get married until much later in life. So I think that people see her as the enemy of the stay-at-home mom. I know that that is always the perception when I was younger that I had of her. Yeah. Like, she's... And also, I was also taught that feminist was a kind of a dirty word. Like, you don't want to be, like, a feminist. So yeah. I think that, to me, she was seen as, like the the negative antithesis of you know a stay-at-home mom which i had no she absolutely was and i think still is because i think that people i think people take personally other people's life choices in that sense where i think gloria worked really hard to not do that but the fact of the matter was she was an unspoken woman who wasn't married didn't have kids and that felt very um attack attacking you know to women and it was like i think sometimes women internalize that own thing of like it's their own personal insecurities that they're laying on themselves and they think that that's what gloria steinem thinks about them yeah but that's not how it is no it's not um it's also just the problem with us only getting snapshots of people and also not actually reading what they're actually saying yeah absolutely (laughs) and i mean gloria steinem even says like i had always planned to get married and have kids yeah i just kept saying later i'll do it later i'll do it later and then i just didn't yeah so it's not like she was anti you know getting married and having kids and Mm -hmm. i i wanted to say that because it is really what i thought about her when i was like a teenager yeah you know but it's just not true So in 1986, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, but fought and recovered and added to her list of things is that she's a cancer survivor. That's incredible. I didn't know that. So she has some really famous pieces I want to reference. Right now, I'm going to kind of go through like a battery of what she wrote about and her different activism. Okay. So she was the first woman to speak at the National Press Club, 
she wrote a satirical article essay for Cosmo called If Men Could Menstruate, concluding that if men could menstruate, it would be a badge of honor instead of a point of shame. I love that article. That was like one of the first things that you read in like women's studies classes. And it's women's so studies great. 101. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also wrote a piece called Feminism and the Clinton Question, in which people kind of today are not cool with how she wrote it because... She said that the things that the women were claiming are absolutely true, but that's not how she would have defined sexual harassment. Hmm. But this is in like 1998. And she even today says, I stand by my piece, though I would have written it differently today. Yeah. I think just our, our definitions are constantly changing within every movement. And she, because she's lived so long, has to continually acknowledge that the language is changing mm-hmm. in the way that we describe things. She also wrote a piece in the 1970s called What If Women Win about women being in office. So... In terms of activism, she's obviously considered a radical liberal feminist. She wanted, like we said, to sponsor the children to go on that CIA trip. (laughs) She protested against Vietnam. She wrote an article called After Black Power, Women's Liberation, which brought her to national fame as a feminist leader and a champion for equal rights. This is an interesting take. She views sexism and racism as essential to one another. So she says that what the patriarchy does is control the bodies of white women so that they can only have babies with white men, like making marriage to other races illegal, et cetera, et cetera. And then by doing that, there aren't children with you know, multiracial backgrounds, which furthers the gap in racism and it allows white men to like, you know, use the patriarchy to put down poor people of color in like shitty working jobs and in bad neighborhoods. Mm. So she's like, without sexism, you can't have racism. Without racism, you can't have sexism. Very interesting. They go together. Um, she also uh, <laughs> was like up there with Shirley Chisholm. Ding, ding, ding. And they found the National Women's Political Caucus. And she actually delivers the speech called Address to the Women in America. Here's her quote. This is no simple reform. It really is a revolution. Sex and race, because they are easy and visible differences, have been the primary way of organizing human beings into superior and inferior groups and into the cheap labor labor on which this system still depends. Hmm. So um, that's what she was saying up with Shirley Chisholm at this uh, National Women's Caucus. As we said in the Shirley Chisholm episode, Gloria did run as a delegate for Shirley in New York, but lost Mm. that election. She spoke at the first. Oh, also, we said in that episode that after she lost that, she turned her delegation towards a male candidate um, because it just felt a lot of people, specifically the women's movement, felt like their time was wasted on Shirley because she wasn't going to win. I feel like that. I feel like that's. What happens in every election cycle of like, well, it's not who I wanted, but like we were doing that now with Biden of like, do we really like, yeah, that's, I saw this thing that was like, like Republicans, like, oh, I hate Biden and Democrats are like, we're not really that big of a fan of him either, but like we can't have Trump in there anymore. We're all voting for Ruth Bader Ginsburg replacement. Yes. Is what we're voting for. Exactly. Nobody really likes Trump or Biden. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so 
Uh, she spoke at the first national conference of stewardesses for women's rights. Wow. Also. Uh, another thing that she revived was Wonder Woman. That's another episode. <gasps> yes. Ding, ding, ding. As we said in that episode, Wonder Woman had lost her powers and was having to dress different and therefore her popularity was gone. And she used Miss Magazine to bring back her popularity and make sure that it got rewritten and we would have a female superhero. That's amazing. It's great. Um, she was arrested along with a number of Congress people and civil rights activists for disorderly conduct for protesting apartheid in South Africa. She protested the Gulf War. She spoke out for Anita Hill. We brought that up in another episode, mm-hmm. the Patsy Mink episode, mm-hmm. against Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court appointment because Anita Hill had been sexually harassed. She protested the Korean War, wanting to do a peace walk across the demilitarized zone, which has a lot of bombs in it, so it's a bad idea. She had <laughs> continuously worked to fight sex trafficking she speaks out about female genital mutilation which we talked about in the mendy nasser episode and she even speaks out against male genital mutilation or circumcision circumcision saying that they both are sexually limiting and are used by the patriarchy to suppress and control people's sex she was an advocate for the kinsey reports which were the spectrum of Mm -hmm. sexuality which we brought up i don't know whose episode that was in i have no idea we've definitely talked about it we have Um, she's spoken out against pornography, but not erotica. Um, she says, you know, whatever pornography you're into, male, 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 female, 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 she isn't, she's worried about things like snuff films and domination that's dangerous to one of the parties. Yeah, because unfortunately, so much of it is produced in terrible circumstances. Yeah, where the people, the actors are mistreated. Yes. Like, if you have control of your game, then you're good. But if you're being mistreated, that is not something we should be broadcasting. Like, this is the way sex should work. Absolutely. And she, for, for three decades... She didn't speak publicly or anything in writing about same-sex marriage, which was really kind of weird. But she did begin to speak publicly advocating for it in the 2000s, where she talked about a wide range of relationships and households and families being great in America. In 2013, she made some really weird remarks that were insensitive to transgender people. Um, And she's since apologized for the wording that she used and the hurt that she could have caused with those. Yeah. In terms of elections, she's involved in a lot of them. I'm sure. (laughs) She, I I marked a couple that were big. Um, In 1968 and 1972, she's really speaking out about Vietnam and like peace talks in America. In 2004, she was really anti-Bush because of his anti-Planned Parenthood situation saying that it was dangerous for the health of women in 2008 she promoted obama and got in a little bit of trouble for saying you know black men get their rights before women Mm -hmm. um but also wrote an op-ed piece that was uh on the unqualifiedness of sarah palin which ding 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 there's (laughs) another and in 2006 16 she endorsed ding 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 hillary clinton and then participated in the women's march around the country against donald trump the current president uh and because she also co-produced a lot of television shows and female press companies she faces harsh criticism even from feminists they question if she really believes in the movement or is she using it to promote herself and like make 
money. But she said, look, it's an accident that I'm the head of the women's movement. The best feminists are like women's, women congresswomen, like the yeah. people who are out doing these jobs, like making a difference, but they are classified by the closest male to them. So they aren't seen as a feminist because they're seen as a congressman, you right. know? And she's like, I don't have like a close male that is also this job. So yeah. I'm just this activist kind of out on a limb. She did create and popularize some terms such as reproductive rights is something that she kind of coined. Um, and then there's a phrase that she didn't say but got attributed to her which is a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle uh time magazine attributed that quote to her but then she wrote a letter to time saying it wasn't me it was irena dunn hmm. so she was cool about it in the year 2000 at age 66 gloria married david bale who's christian bale's father mm -hmm. i could not believe when i found out that Gloria Steinem was Christian Bale's stepmother. <laughs> it's bananas. It really is. Uh, you want to know which uh, her story alum performed the wedding ceremony? Oh my gosh. Um, oh my gosh. You will never guess. <laughs> I, all right. I won't guess. Who is it? Wilma Mankiller. What? <laughs> yeah, I would have never guessed. Can you That's insane. That? She did their wedding ceremony. Weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I was just listening. I was just thinking about her um, recently because we were talking to a woman who is like a scholar of the West and yeah. like Native Americans. And I was like, oh, I'm a woman killer. Yeah. So, um, you know, three years after uh, Gloria got married, uh, David Bale dies of <gasps> brain lymphoma. So no. she gets married once in her life and he died like three years oh my later. Gosh. So that's really sad. In her 60s, though, she said that the demand of gender on her has really changed. Like, she doesn't feel the same pressures of womanhood now that she did as a young woman. And I wonder if it's because people don't sexualize her as much now in her age. Um, and also, of course, she's won millions of awards. Mm -hmm. She's been everywhere in the media, interviews, articles, publishing. Her first book was called The Thousand Indias and was published in 1957. Other famous ones were Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions in the 80s. And then um, My Life on the Road, which is kind of her tell-all in 2015. And then there's another cute one says, The Truth Will Set You Free, But First It Will Piss You Off in 2015. Um and if you are a podcast person, like I said earlier, please go listen to all of this in her words. Yeah. Because she does not mince words and she's done bazillion podcasts and you can watch all of her television interviews from her at like any age. Mm -hmm. And like if somebody says something, she doesn't condescend. She just says like, I wouldn't have said it that way. Like yeah. this is the word I would have used or I wouldn't have said effect. I would have said impact because she never wants herself to be misconstrued or misunderstood. She's very good yeah. at public speaking. Because I'm sure that's just been happening to her for so long oh at gosh, every turn. Yeah. And she's so she's just great at it now. Yeah. One of my favorite things she said while I was doing this research is when she's talking to Sophia Bush, Bush and she's talking about the baby clause, um, where it you, obviously somebody had to co-sign a loan for you if you're a woman, but in a lot of loans as a woman, you had to sign that you wouldn't have a baby until you paid the loan off. Wait, what? Because they wanted like to make sure that you were good for the loan. And if you have a kid, you're going to spend your money on the kid. 
which is absurd. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And she also talks about how her mother had to co-sign on her credit cards because a woman until 1975 wasn't allowed to have a credit card, but she was financially responsible for her mother who was mentally ill, but her mother had to co-sign because she didn't have a husband to co-sign. Ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, that was also Sophia, Sophia Bush's reaction to which she said, that's just it. I, I want you to be pissed off. It's the job of old people like me to remind everybody how far we've come and remind you the ground that you're building off of. And it's the job of young people like you to get mad as hell at how far we still have to go. Wow. And it's just, I love that she's like, I'm glad you're mad. Yeah. I want you to be mad. Be mad. She's like still 86 years old. <laughs> Poking <laughs> the belly of the beast. Like, yes. She loves seeing fired up young girls. So, of course, she attended the women's marches um, against Donald Trump. And um, now at 86, she is still pushing and teaching and fighting for and with us. And that so far is the story of Gloria Steinem. That's amazing. I could have dug deep into every single one of those things, but it yeah. just would have been forever. Certain things she did are just a whole story in, in and of themselves. Yeah. It's one of those things, too, where there are a lot of things that I didn't know, but I was never, like, overly surprised at, like, yeah. all the cool things that she did. Mm. She's an amazing, amazing person. That's awesome. And, mm. a, like one of the most influential activists of the 20th century absolutely for sure yeah mm. you ready for another drink all right i'm, I'm ready for parents to drink. judge us yes absolutely okay <laughs> okay so we are back for part Two. Yeah, and this is a wild end to a wild season that uh, quarantine-based season six, microphones falling, <laughs> wicker tables cracking, dogs barking. It's just, uh, it's been, it's been a ride. Yeah, we only have 10 more episodes till we're at 100. And that's 100 women episodes, not like the other yeah. stuff. We've yeah. definitely done over 100 with all of our interviews and gal gabs. Absolutely. Amazing. <laughs> Well, now we're going to get into the story of Mary Wollstonecraft. The first, like, real feminist. The first, like, real feminist, and it's very exciting. Um, do you want to know what you're about to drink? I really do, because I already tasted it. I cheated. Yeah, Sorry. I know. I, I did, it too. So, cute. so this is called the Hyena in Petticoats. Oh, we got some good names this week. Yes, um, so you kind of slightly muddle, like, a big slice of lemon in a glass, and then in a cocktail shaker, you do two ounces of aquavit because Scandinavia is a, a good part of this story. Um, an ounce of honey ginger simple syrup and a half ounce of like French ginger liqueur because um, France is also a part of this story. And then you top the whole thing off with club soda and you let the lemon slice kind of float on top. Cheers. Cheers. You want to see how I can't turn my wrist? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It almost tastes like you have mezcal in there. Yeah. Why does it taste like that? I don't know. The aquavit is so, it's such a weird tasting liquor. It's like bread. 
Yeah. But not as bread as the Dolly Parton one. No, it's not as rye bread as the Dolly Parton, but there's still some rye in there. And it's just, I don't know, it's a really weird tasting liquor, but I like it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I could do like cocktails with it frequently, but I like it as a nice respite from other types of liquors. No, yeah, I agree with that. And Mm -hmm. it has a really cool bottle, the one you have. It's like Mm -hmm. convex and concave. Yes. (laughs) I don't know which one. It's one of the two. (laughs) So what do you know about Mary Wollstonecraft? Um, so I know she's Mary Shelley's mother because we had to do a lot of research on Mary Shelley when we did that thing in New York. Yes. Uh, and now I never want to research Mary Shelley again. Nope. Um, and then I know she wrote a book called, I think, The Vindication of the Rights of Women. Mm-hmm. And that she wears a white blouse in that one portrait that people think is Mary Shelley. And that's all. All right. So this is going to be a wild ride because I do know she is the first feminist. Yes. And I also know so far in this episode, what a great season finale. How many other episodes I and women know. that we've talked about. It really does feel like a cool like culmination of like so many people we have talked about. And that's why we actually had this scheduled for the penultimate episode and then mm-hmm. we changed it. Yes. And I'm really glad we did. I agree. Because this is really like these are the first feminists. Yes, absolutely. Of different eras. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I don't want to discount women's rights activists that we don't know about from yeah, yeah, other yeah. times, oh, places, sure. continents. These are two white women, Western yes. <laughs> feminist activists. Absolutely. Okay. So um, I got most of this from the History Chicks and then some YouTube videos and just, you know, some articles and Wikipedia, just like all that stuff. Um, but the History Chicks really was my main source. Sometimes um, it's all we got. And Yeah. And there's also um, a podcast called Philosophize This, which I listened to, and they were really nice and helpful um, because she really is like a, a philosopher. philosopher. Okay. Um, so Mary Wollstonecraft was born on April 27th, 1759 in London. Ooh. She was born the second of seven children to Elizabeth Dixon and Edward John Wollstonecraft. Mary was born in a well-to-do household. Uh, Her grandfather had left his daughter um, a healthy inheritance when he died. But as the years went on, Mary's father would prove to be incredibly bad at managing the family's money. He drank, he gambled, and he would just invest in, like, really terrible ventures. And he felt like he had earned the right to hobnob around with the elite without having to actually earn any money of his own. And the squandering led to squalor, and he would often resort to physical violence when he was in his drunken rages. Oh, my gosh. Towards Mary or all the kids or just the wife? Predominantly the wife. Um, But I think that he was also abusive to the children. Um, Her mother was not a very strong woman, so she would often just take to bed because she was so incredibly distraught and depressed at what her life had become. And she was also probably in a lot of physical pain most of the time because he was so abusive to her. And I'm also guessing that she suffered from specifically postpartum depression because she had seven kids. And we know that her eldest son, Ned, was the only child she best breastfed. Everyone else, she just sent them away as the, when they were babies to be nursed by other women. And as we will also find out, postpartum depression definitely and just depression absolutely runs in their family well but i mean mary shelley suffered from postpartum depression when we did that episode like several babies in yeah she's like really struggling okay yeah all right um and this is the story that like this is the life that young mary found herself in and she would often like 
in order to protect her mother, she would sleep outside of her bedroom door, like all curled up on the floor. So the dad couldn't get in? Yeah. Oh. I know. So this is the life she found herself in, protecting her mother and becoming a mother figure to her two sisters, um, Everina and Eliza. And to make things worse, she wasn't even allowed to go to school. Her brothers were all sent away for education at a young age, but poor Mary was made to stay at home and learn household things, which she did not appreciate. Thankfully, she did find some refuge outside of the household. She befriended a young girl in town named Jane Arden and became just totally infatuated with her and her family. She couldn't believe that Jane's father treated his daughters equally, even allowing them to attend school. And she also couldn't believe just how nice and normal they were. <laughs> she was also just incredibly impressed with Jane and her intelligence. They would do things like read books together and they would attend lectures on philosophy and science. And it was just this whole new world for Mary. But in what we will see will soon be a pattern Mary became very obsessed and possessive of Jane mm. and their friendship, and she did not like things coming in between them. She would get really jealous when Jane had other friends, which was a totally normal thing to have. <laughs> she once wrote to her, I have formed romantic notions of friendship. I am a little singular in my thoughts of love and friendship. I must have the first place or none. She wants that best friend necklace heart that connects. Absolutely. And also for Jane to talk to no one else ever. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And they did have an extremely deep relationship, which was romantic, but not sexual. So there are a lot of examples of these throughout history. So sometimes it's difficult to know whether or not someone was gay and would have had sexual relationships with their bosom buddies if it was acceptable or if they were just best friends and loved each other. Like, I was thinking about this. If someone, someone were to discover my cell phone 200 years from now and read the text between me and my fiance and me and my best friend, they would absolutely be like, this woman is a lesbian. Right. Like, to Casey's like, did you get milk? Right. And then to Paige, it's like, I love you so much. Like, <laughs> where have you been? I haven't I seen you in two days. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that that's happening a lot in these time periods because, of course, like it wasn't accepted, but it never really went past her just being like an absolutely like best friend to someone. Mm -hmm. And we just know that she got very emotionally involved. Maybe she was bisexual. We know that Mary Shelley would be bisexual later on in life. So I don't know. But all I know is that she had very intense friendships. And that's kind of what I want to label it as mm -hmm. is a very intense friendship. Um, but her and Jane would not last. Mary's father had squandered a bit too much money this time, and they were forced to relocate to a really shady part of town. Oh, no. Um, a neighborhood where Mary and her sisters couldn't even walk outside safely. Oh. It was really bad. Um, but another neighborly family did take a liking to the young children, Mary in particular. And the father allowed Mary access to his vast library and would recommend books, particularly philosophy books. Like he really took her under his wing and was like, I think you have a great mind. Like you should read this. You should read that. And almost like a tutor. Yes. Okay. And he's kind of the first real father figure she has. Okay. And she really attaches herself to him. And this isn't a relationship in a creepy way at all? No, no, okay. not at all. Um, and one day while they're hanging out, waxing and waning about what's like 
whatnot in philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like Aristotle, you know. Yes. He's like, oh my gosh, you know who you would really get along with? Another student of mine. Her name is Fanny Blood. Which, what a wild name. <laughs> I want that name for myself. I know. I'm going to the Maryland State Fan- Office tomorrow. <laughs> I'm changing my name to Fanny Blood. Fanny Blood. Ms. Blood. Ms. Oh, no, Blood. I'd be Dr. Blood. Oh, my God. Call producer. I'm changing my last name. <laughs> so, and he introduces them, and it is love at first sight. She's like, you know, fuck Jane. Fanny is where it's at. Fanny is more traditional than Mary. She's smart and witty, but she's also very feminine. So they just complemented each other very well. And rather than Mary trying to fit in with her family like she did with Jane, Fanny kind of came into their fold because she also came from a pretty poor family. And she became the fourth sister to Mary, Eliza, and Everina. Isn't that good when you don't feel embarrassed around your family, around your friends? Yes. Like when they just get it, they're like, oh, yeah, my mom's crazy too. It's cool. Absolutely. And they were always extremely close. Another thing that bonded these girls was that they didn't have dowries. Mary's went down the tubes a long time ago and... Fanny just came from a poor family. So they were all like, yeah, we're never getting married. Isn't that great? (laughs) Time to hang out. So when Mary was 19 years old, she decided that since they didn't have dowries and they were not going to get married, that she was going to provide for her and Fanny. They were going to live together for the rest of their lives, and she would basically be the husband figure to Fanny. Again, we're going to be best friends forever. (laughs) That's what they were saying. We're going to be like Laverne and Shirley. Like, I know we're going to different colleges, yeah. but like, I swear. <laughs> so they have this plan. They're going to be like life partners. They're so excited. Um, so she struck out on her own and she got a job as a lady's companion for an older woman named Sarah Dawson. What a job. I know. It's kind of like being a governess, but for just like an old lady. And so, so a nurse. you're <laughs> higher class than a maid. And you're just kind of there to, like, keep things moving and, like, play chess with them. And, like, when they have their other older lady friends over, you get them tea. But not in a maid way. In a companion way. So, she had this going on. But Mrs. Dawson, like, really treated Mary Mary, like the family dog. She ordered her around and said really mean things to her in front of people. I pictured it the way... Trix Gilmore treats Emily Gilmore. Okay. Just like that thing of like always saying something like so rude that you cannot believe it, but in such a polite way. It's unbelievable. It's also like in um Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid, where like the prince is having the little mermaid like sleep at the foot of his bed. He's treating her like a dog. He's treating her like Jan Levinson treats Michael Scott. Right. How many examples can we give? (laughs) All of them. Let's keep naming them. Um, Yeah. So, no, I I totally hear that. Like, she's treating her better than a maid, but she's being purposefully condescending to assert her power over this woman. Mm -hmm. And also to make herself seem cool to, like, her old lady friends who came over to play bridge. Yeah, exactly. So... Mary said that her spirit was broken after this. And that's saying a lot because she came from an abusive household. <laughs> like, I slept outside my mom's what? door. What? And you broke me. You broke me. So she um, is really irritated with all of this. And she gets a, kind of saved by a letter from her sister, Eliza, basically saying, you need to come home. Mom's really sick. You need to help us take care of her. It's just me and Everina. And like, we need help. 
So she goes home and for the next two years becomes kind of her mother's lady companion until she passes away. Um, And poor Elizabeth was hardly in the grave before Mary's father was on the hunt for a new wife. I mean, come on. (laughs) Like, she wasn't even dead. And he was like, well, she's going to kick the bucket any day now. So any takers? I'm a wealthy older gentleman looking for a young bride. Did you put an ad out? Really sick. (laughs) Um, So he is courting women she dies and then he's like great and he marries a new woman like that like immediately his family is like just a sexual family come on and the kids hated this woman and it really broke the family apart this is mary shelley's story i know how did it happen two generations later it skipped a generation it's like a gene it's so wild how Similar. similar like how the same thing just kind of seems to like it seems to keep like recycling like over and over again it's so weird um so kids hated this woman everyone moved on moved in with her um oh sorry not everyone everine <laughs> everine moved in with her older brother mary moved in with the blood family um she was just like i'm out and but eliza had something else planned in a surprising move because this was the uh, the single girls club. She got married. Whoa! With no yeah. dowry. Uh-huh. People didn't expect her to, but she was really pretty. So that kind of makes up for the no dowry. Mm. <laughs> so marry she did to a man who ended up causing a lot of trouble. God damn it. So they get married. I was really rooting for her. I know. She gets pregnant. She has a kid. And... It wasn't long before the new husband is calling Mary and he's like, you need to come get her. She's crazy. So she immediately rushes to Eliza's side, side and she finds her in this terrible fit. She is angry and sad and furious and scared. And she's telling Mary, she's like, you need to get me out of here. My husband is beating me and I cannot leave. I just, I just, I, I need to leave. I can't take it anymore. And she's like flipping out. She having postpartum depression. She had postpartum depression. And she was being abused by her husband. Oh, my God. Just the worst. Just, again, generational trauma. Horrible. So she's like, you need to get me out of this. But the problem is she had a baby. And at this time and age, she couldn't really get a divorce. Like, at this time in England, you literally had to go straight to Parliament in order for a woman to get a divorce, a man could get it any sort of way. But then also, don't you give up the custody of your kid? That's exactly it. She had, she would, she was like, I either stay here and get beaten every day of my life and have a baby, or I leave and leave my baby to him and feel terrible for the rest of my life, but at least I'm out. I just don't know what to do. So there was really no other option. So they just packed up all of her things. Mary was like, I'm going to get you out of here. And she sneaks Eliza out of the house and they go into hiding and she leaves her baby behind with her husband. It's that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And And it's it's a oh, it's like a fight or flight situation and the guilt of motherhood and the patriarchy working against the fact that like you government like you legally aren't responsible for your child. Yeah, it's horrible. The whole. Yeah, it really sucks. And things only get worse for Eliza after this. The baby ends up dying after she leaves and society completely rejects her for running out on her family. She couldn't remarry and she's just left to a life of hard labor and poverty. But she always said she never regretted leaving. That's how terrible that guy was. 
So, but before things got really bad for her, they were kind of sneak out in the middle of the night like that. Like back then, I feel like people couldn't track you on Facebook. No, no. Like you, I, I think about that a lot. And that's why, you know, like in kind of the early 1900s, like there were a lot of like wild serial killers because you could literally just go on a killing spree in one time and then leave. And then yeah. nobody knew who you were. Nobody could track you. I also think though, like me assuming like she could just take the baby and leave is also my privilege. Like, mm. oh, just get in your car and go. Like, right. Yeah. I'm like a rich white girl who could like just disappear and nobody would find me where it's it's like obviously she's not in that situation yeah and also i feel like then right now she's just kind of abandoning but if she were to take the baby she could probably be charged with kidnapping she could go to jail yeah exactly jails were horrible and also like if she's going into hiding what kind of life can she provide for her baby i don't know where's the money you gotta like run to a church or something i feel like that's the only option sanctuary yeah um yeah what does esmeralda say sanctuary that's the word (laughs) let's bring up more things let's bring up more things um i want somebody to make a chart of this episode (laughs) just a spider web um so they decide when they first kind of leave and get out that they go into hiding for a bit until things calm down. And then Mary's like, you know what? We're going to make a place that we're going to make the place that we never had as a child. We're going to start a school. So they go to this place, Newington Green, which was a community of dissenters, which was basically um, a group of people who believed in a future RPG. of. <laughs> I had to send. I had she to put her in. Well. I had to put her in. It was basically like a group of people who believed in a future of reason and religion. So mm. they were kind of like, "Why can't we believe in science and God?" <laughs> you know, they were kind of on the cutting edge of like, "Yeah, I think that we can. I think this can work. I think it can work. I think we got it." So two hundred years later, yeah. <laughs> so the three sisters and Fanny start a school. And the school was heavily focused on big ideas and philosophy. I kind of think of it as like an early Montessori school. Mm. So much so um, that she was actually asked to lighten up on the material a little bit. People were like, <laughs> um, I don't think that these fifth graders need to be reading Descartes. <laughs> they do. I don't even know if Descartes existed then. I think he did. Doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter. So they had about 20 students to start it off with. doesn't even matter. <laughs> Sorry. Lincoln Park needed a shout out. They learned so hard. <laughs> um, and during this time, they had kind of paired up with this Unitarian minister who was very into attacking injustice wherever it arose. He supported the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and he supported clubs that supported women. He's... Kind of this, like, very early feminist ally. Love him. Um, he also saw a lot of potential in Mary's writing and encouraged her to pursue it as a profession. Um, but she didn't quite have time for it because she's running this darn school. Um, she also then expanded the school and turned it in, like, another portion of it into a bed and breakfast. So she's really busy. So they're doing it. Mary gets hit with a bombshell. Fanny's getting married. Fanny Blood? Fanny Blood. The Fanny Blood that we knew from back in our stomping ground? Yeah. She's getting married. And this is very disappointing for Mary, who's like, I thought we were going to be spinsters for life. Like, what? That was our plan. That was our plan. And she's real clingy with friends. She's very clingy. So she feels very just rejected. Um, And the problem was, too, she's not only getting married... (laughs) 
she is moving to Portugal with her new husband. She's blindsided like Sandra I Bullock. I mean, <laughs> she wasn't the one blindsided. No, that was Michael Orr, but still. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's the double entendre of the movie. I don't know. Maybe she was blindsided with how, like, Amazing I don't know. of a mother football coach she is. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she was like, wow, like. I'm not racist. That's nice. Or maybe I am. I don't know. That's a contentious figure. We should cover her. Yeah. Was that, wait, was that, that was Sandra Bullock, right? Yes. Sandra Bullock in the movie. No, 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 no. (laughs) Definitely Sandy B. Halfway through was like, "Mm." definitely Sandy B. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I saw that movie in the theaters. (laughs) Hey, check your blind side. (laughs) You gotta check your blind side. Like, he doesn't know that. He's, like, a high school football player. Also, I just... That movie is so messed up. I feel like Michael Orr was like, I'm not, like, an idiot. I'm, I'm not mentally ill. Like, like there's that scene where, like... I'm, there's a scene if where... you're not from Baltimore, this is not a big deal to you. Michael I mean, Orr played on the Ravens, everybody. He did. And there's a scene where he's in school and he is given an exam and they pick it up and it's just a picture of a boat. He just <laughs> drew a boat. Michael Orr was like, I'm not an idiot. Like, wh- and that never happened. <laughs> Listen. It, like, portrayed him as, like, severely, like like disabled disabled yeah Yeah. it was ridiculous like a person with different abilities yeah and he's like no that didn't happen i was just poor like but if miss congeniality is gonna adopt i know you gotta draw a boat she can drive a get it yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna help you speed towards your goal of being on the ravens (laughs) (laughs) that's it for sandy bullock corner Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay. I, st- I didn't find where I was. I don't know why I said okay like I did. Um, so she is very depressed. She is like, I don't know what's going on. My life partner is gone. She just like goes into like a trance and is just wandering around the school. She doesn't sleep. She doesn't eat. She's just walking around like a ghost and like she's just in a complete daze. And then she gets word that Fanny is pregnant. So she's like, all right, I got to get it together. I got to go to Portugal and be with my best friend when she has her baby. So she goes, she runs off to Portugal to be with her best friend. the ocean? Mm, I don't think you have to for Portugal. You just have to go through Spain. Oh, I guess you do have to cross the channel. Yeah. Um, so oh, she yeah. crosses the channel scene, yeah. and then, yeah, Portugal's like on the, right there, on the coast edge of Spain. Spain. <laughs> it's on the Iberian Peninsula. Peninsula. Um, so, <laughs> so she gets there and it's probably a good thing she got there because Fanny's baby has died. No. Again? No. So that, I know, Eliza's that baby, was Eliza. Yeah. Baby, so Eliza's her sister. Fanny's her best friend. The infant mortality rate in this story is it's 100%. 100%. Support. So Fanny is very upset. And then she gets extremely sick with consumption. Which is tuberculosis, right? Tuberculosis. TB. So she's coughing up blood. And Mary is extremely distraught. And... Fanny Blood's got at that the, blood. She really does. And at the end of three months, Fanny dies. No. How sad. So Mary loses her life partner, her very best friend. I mean, I can't imagine that. No. I just can't. And 
So she is just really upset. She goes back to England to the boarding house where she left her sisters, Eliza and Everina, in charge. And she finds empty rooms. No students, no boarders. Her sisters uh, had just... Just abandoned the job? Well, not exactly. But they were so terrible and rude to all the guests and students that they all left. And they basically ran the business into the ground in those three months that Mary was gone. And fall far from the tree. Yeah. And Mary's like, what? I was gone for two minutes and you ran the business into the ground. Uh, Absurd. I can't believe that. So in 1785, she is left with no best friend and no job. But there is a glimmer of hope. During this time, she did start her first novel. So she is writing. Um, She then found work in Ireland as a governess for Lady Kingsborough's daughters. She got along okay with the daughters and they learned a lot from her. But she and Lady Kingsborough did not get along. She did not like this new development that her daughters were trusting their governess rather than their own mother she was like like why are they telling you things that they don't tell me and mary's like i don't know because i treat them with respect and like i listen to them like i don't know what you want me to do (laughs) so all this led to her writing a book not the one that she's been working on that's going to come back later so this is the book called thoughts on the education of daughters with reflections on female conduct and more important duties of life it's a very long title she loves a long title. She does. And this first book encourages mothers to teach their daughters analytical thinking, self-discipline, honesty, contentment in their social position, and marketable skills in case they should ever have to support themselves. She's basically saying like, hey, stop teaching your daughters to only be wives. Teach them to be like something more. Like, <laughs> So Mary is now finding herself in the midst of the Enlightenment period. And a well-acquainted, and she's also well-acquainted with a man named Joseph Johnson. So he was a publisher who saw great potential in Mary and who also knew what he was doing. I mean, he did happen to be the publisher for a little nobody guy named Benjamin Franklin. Mm. Yeah. So he takes Mary under his wing and he starts to kind of fund her writing. He sets her up in an apartment and gives her an allowance so that she can finally focus on churning out the next great piece of British thought. After her book on education um, is published and finished, she finishes the other book she was writing on, which was called Mary, a Fiction, which should have absolutely been called Mary, a Fiction, but not actually fiction at all. (laughs) That would have been a longer title. Yeah, true. She would have loved it. So every character in it absolutely represents someone in her life, especially Lady Kingsborough, who does not come off well in this book. So she's fired immediately. (laughs) I mean, taking <laughs> shots left and right. She really is. Mary's not faced, though. She's like, that's fine. I have two publications under my belt. And Johnson is supporting me. I'm heading to London. So Johnson had started his own journal because they found themselves in a very interesting time in London. Again, not only it is the, the middle of the Enlightenment, but a historically high number of the population in England can read now. It's 50% of people can read now, which is astonishingly high given their historical record. Yeah. Yes. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. And journals were really popular because they were cheaper than books and you got to read more things from more different people. Exactly. So it's like, why am I going to buy one book about one person when I can buy this journal and get a bunch of smaller pieces and learn more? 
So journals, which were like pseudo magazines at the time, were like really, really popular. So Age of Enlightenment, Kant, Locke, Descartes, I think, uh, coming out <laughs> with these very important philosophical pieces. We'll have to check on that Descartes yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> and people's minds are really being open to these big ideas. So she starts writing for Johnson, and she's writing children's stories, book reviews, sensational dramatic stories, and even translating some famous pieces because she was fluent in French and German also. Of course she was. She was Why wouldn't really she smart. Be? So what she's doing at the moment is kind of trying out various genres and seeing what kind of stuff she likes to write and what kind of stuff she's good at writing. Well, sci-fi doesn't exist yet, so. Yeah. <laughs> then she writes a piece called The Vindication of the Rights of Man. That's what she's really famous for, right? Not- but people say women. Nope. They're two different pieces. Oh. <laughs> Did her husband write the other one? No. So... She writes a piece called The Vindication of the Rights of Man, which I was super unaware that The Rights of Women is a sequel in this case. So here's the story. This guy, Edmund Burke, who is super caught up in the French Revolution, wrote this piece called Reflections on the Revolution on France. And this piece did not go over well. He's basically like shitting on the poor people who are rioting. And he's like, how dare you upset the power structure? It's obviously the power structure that we have because it works the best. And I can't believe that these vile women of the streets could even begin to compare to our lovely and godly Marie Antoinette. And Mary was like, is he wrong? It's <laughs> like Marie Antoinette, ding ding ding. That's another one. I know. And Mary is like, You mean women who gained livelihood by selling vegetables or fish who never had any advantages of an education? And Marie Antoinette, who's building fake poor people towns yeah. in Versailles <laughs> to hang out. And so it was a hot piece. And among all the responses, hers was the most popular Ooh. so she writes the vindication of the rights of man in response to this guy so it's a clap back yes okay she was a staunch defender of the revolutionaries and the middle class but because she wanted the response to be immediate she published it anonymously and in small sections at a time so Ooh, very federalist paper of her yes so it's coming out and that people are like who is this like oh my gosh look at what they're saying i love it and it is like the most popular clapback to this piece that everyone hates <laughs> and people are praising this forward thinker she published a re- and then she published a revised collection she's like all right you like it so much i'm gonna put it all together so it's not separate And I'm going to put my name on it. And people are like, oh, wait, it was a girl. People are pissed that it's a girl. And they start revolting against it. They're writing it bad reviews all of a sudden. And she is notoriously called in these papers a hyena in petticoats, which is why I named the cocktail that. (laughs) So she's pissed. She's like, I am so sick of these double standards and ideas that women and men are unequal and that women are not allowed to think or have passion. And why does it matter? I'm saying the same things. And you thought that a man wrote it, so it was okay. And a woman's writing it, and it's not okay. So... She then responds to this. So this is a clapback on her clapback, a vindication of the rights of women. In this book, she basically argues that women are inferior because the social structure that has existed around them for so long has made them inferior. So she kind of links it to this philosophical thing of like the association of ideas. 
So right now we are celebrating Shark Week. And when we hear the word shark, we think of water, blood, sharp teeth. That just immediately comes into our head and we hear danger. And it doesn't matter that the actual number of shark-related deaths per year is pretty low. Six or seven. Yep. It doesn't matter that Shark Week comes on every year to be like, we need to save these precious creatures. (laughs) Literally. And this is, it's just like, that's what we think of. It's the association of ideas and we can't get that out of our head. And Mary says that this is what has been happening to women. When people think of women, they think weak, wife, mother, less than. Interesting. This has been built into men and women's psyches. So society drags women down and builds men up because to men, that's the natural order. And to women, like they often just didn't know that they should be treated better because again, that is the order that they were raised in. It's like you wouldn't throw your kid into a shark infested pool because you're like, no, shark is danger. Like you wouldn't send a woman to college because you're like, no, women aren't smart. Women don't have, like, as large a brains. Right. It's just what we are. It's a societal idea that you're taught systematically. Yeah. And it it just happens. Exactly. And so it's almost like it's common sense to think that way because you are trained to think that way and associate women with that. You're retraining your brain if you think different, which takes a long time. Exactly. So, um and this type of association also makes women associate delicacy and beauty with attracting a man. Mm. So it also kind of works in women's minds to not only be like, well, it shouldn't change. And also, like, if I want my life to be better, then I need to value beauty and delicacy because the reward is marriage. Because, normalcy. And normalcy. Because, again, marriage and a traditional life is seen as the greatest reward. Right. It's the end game. It is. And since women are conditioned to be beautiful and delicate and meek, they, like she said, they fail to gain common sense and intellect, which I think is not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. I think you can still have common sense and intellect while being all these things, because I think this is kind of the gut wrench reaction of like first wave feminism of like, no, like we can't be like wearing dresses and like, it's like everybody has to switch completely. Exactly. So... Um, And then she, like, said the main culprit of this is, like, romance novels, which she hated. She was like, I think that they're disgusting. Like, they just, again, like, reward this, like, bad behavior of, like, the, you know, stupid woman who just, like, all she wants to do is get a man. So, like, she is not into that. But it's not just romance novels that are the problem. She's like, the Enlightenment period that we're in, well, that should apply to women as well. We need to educate women the same as men so that they have an equal opportunity in life. She also said that love and marriage is basically slavery because if the people are not equal in the transaction, it cannot truly be consensual. Right. Because if there's an an innate inadequacy or like unevenness, then like the whole marriage is just screwed from the beginning. So often we have talked about how marriage in the past was a form of slavery. Yeah, absolutely. Like specifically with paying a dowry. Like you have bought this person's relationship yeah and they can't leave super crazy um and again like she knows right now that business it's like marriage is a business relationship where women are meant to serve and men are meant to receive and she was also like (laughs) i love this she was like modesty is a joke and it's oppressive to women um (laughs) and she makes the point that she didn't want women to have power over men. She just wanted women to have power over themselves. Hmm. 
And she also points out that it was super hypocritical of the men of the Age of Enlightenment that they were talking about all men being equal, yet they totally trample half of society, meaning women, and then, like, the other half meaning like slaves um i don't know exactly how she felt about slavery but i feel like that's the thing we talk about most in our day and age of like Mm. these men in the constitution writing you know that all men are created equal and yet owning slaves and the hypocrisy of that and she's seeing the same exact thing of them saying like yeah we need to like you know teach people and da 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 and like we need to go towards a more equal society and she's like yeah but all of you still just like treat your wives like crap you Mm -hmm. know and Mm -hmm. think women are less than so she's pointing out the hypocrisy and all that and the book ended up being 450 pages long whoa (laughs) the long book um but even though she's kind of waxing poetic about women being strong and having more rights in society mary is not immune to again obsessing over men which is a really ironic part of her life that like men totally consume and like just relationships in general, because before this it was Jane and Fanny. Right. So she becomes obsessed with this guy, Henry um, Fusili. So she is, she meets him and she just falls in love and she starts writing him multiple letters every day, telling him how much she loves him to the point where someone said that he was walking around town with unread love letters from Mary literally pouring out of his pockets. Oh my, that's stage five clinger. And he's married. Oh no. So Mary is like, no, it's fine. It'll all work out. So she goes to his wife and is like, hey, I totally understand that you don't want to break up. So here's the plan. You can keep sleeping with him, but how about I move in with you guys. And what does his wife say there? She says no. And they put a restraining order against Mary because she's crazy. Exactly. And this whole situation, it's very awkward. It's very embarrassing. And it's just everyone is like, oh, my God, Mary, what are you doing? Like, just let him go. So Johnson, who's such a dear friend, says, okay, why don't I send you an assignment to France to cover the revolution? Get out of town. Like, you need to get away from all this. So while she's in France, she starts getting involved with the, like, salon culture of, like, all these men kind of talking and hanging out. But while she's getting involved with, you know, these kind of French philosophers, don't forget that Britain declared war on France and then France decides to take Louisiana back from Spain. Also, France is going through their own revolution. So things are really crazy. People said so. Exactly. So because there's this whole Louisiana thing going on, this brings another journalist to town, an American named Gilbert Imlay. She, of course, fell deeply in love with him. But this time she's like, okay. I'm going to put my own philosophy to the test. And by this, I mean, she recreates the first episode of Sex and the City, and she says, I'm going to have sex like a man. She loves love, this She woman. really does. So she literally goes to his door and is like, let's do this. Like, raps on his door, goes into his apartment, is like, I'm ready. She's like, here for a one-night stand. Yeah. But, of course, Mary can't have a one-night stand. She's too obsessive by Calvin Klein. Um... <laughs> Um, so she begins to have a sexual relationship whilst being unmarried, very scandalous, 
and she feels very personally awakened as to how much she likes sex. And Imlay is this very exotic and exciting man because he was American. Ooh, and he, he's a cowboy. That's what he said. So he told her that he was a former captain of the Revolutionary War, nope. which was not true. Um, he was like, yeah, I'm straight from the wild western frontier of Kentucky. I'm, a I'm from the frontier. And like most skeevy men from history, he was actually from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> There's no need for you anymore. There's New Jersey. no need. So, um, but I will say he was very pro women getting the vote. He truly believed that it was like really messed up that women should have to follow the rules like and the laws that they had no part in making. <laughs> so he is um sorry. It's super romantic, it's super fun, but remember, in the background of these picnics on the, you know, like, seaside of France, whatever they're doing on the cobblestone streets, there is the revolution, and people are getting guillotined left and right. Like, she literally talks about, like, strolling arm-in-arm with him while they're on a date, and blood runs through the cobblestone under her feet from someone getting their head chopped off. I hope she's not wearing heels. Probably. And I mean, that's on her shoes. I know. I know. So this is a really wild time in France, and it's actually getting kind of dangerous. So Imlay decides to register her as his wife, even though they aren't actually married. Just to be like, if anyone stopped her in the street and were like, what are you doing here? You're British. He could be like, no, no, no. She's my wife. She's cool. And they could be like, okay. Oh, okay. Thanks. Okay. But they're not actually married, but they do move in together. And Mary soon becomes pregnant with her first child. But when things start getting serious, Imlay is suddenly away for business and not coming home and spending more time at his office downtown. Mary is not loving this, but she does give birth to a little girl who she adores. She becomes obsessed with this little girl and she names her, of course, Fanny. Fanny. Who saw that coming? Um, Me. So she has this baby and she carries it around with her everywhere. She's just obsessed with it. Like postpartum depression, thankfully, does not hit her. Like Mm. she is very into this. Um, But once the baby comes, Imlay becomes even more of a jerk. And he's like, what happened to you, man? I thought you were like a bohemian and, so and like cool. free love and feminism. And now you have a kid and you want to like have me be like your actual husband, and like stay home with you. Like, what is this? Which is like really frustrating because again, it's like you can be a feminist and have a home and kids. So... They move back to London, and he really bails when they get there. Aww. He, like, kind of sets up the house and then just leaves. Great, Emma. Good job. Yeah. Mary falls into a really deep depression because she thought that Emily was it. And right. now she's alone with a baby, and she is just feeling like a failure. So she takes an overdose of laudanum and <sighs> tries to kill herself. But... She does, like, leave, like, she, like, kind of sends him a letter, and he comes and does, like, resuscitate her, and she, you know, is saved. Um, But... Isn't that how Fanny dies later on? Yeah. Yeah. Then, 
so this is unsuccessful. And then Emily's like, all right, I'm really done with you. And then he actually ends up moving in with another woman. <sighs> so then comes her second suicide attempt. She throws herself into the Thames River. And she is rescued by fishermen who had recovered her from the water. They saved her by performing CPR on her and bringing her back to life. So she's not having an easy go at it. No. Something I heard during my research, which is really fascinating, is that during the Enlightenment period, they discovered CPR and they're like, oh, my gosh, we can bring people back from the dead. So they would actually give fishermen money for anyone that they brought back to life with CPR. And all of this would very much influence a young woman writing in the future when all she was thinking about was the idea of resurrection. Frankenstein. Isn't that crazy? Like, again, like the circular nature of their stories. So anyway, she is really angry that they saved her life. She's like, no, like, I don't want to live anymore. Like, how dare you save my life? And she's feeling like, just really like out of her mind and she ends up going to Imlay and his mistress and she asks them if she can move in with them and like just be a part of their couple she just wants to like cling to things she She can't like i know (sighs) poor thing i know so they obviously say no and mary ends up just running off to scandinavia with her little daughter And she ends up writing a book while she's here called Letters Written in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. The book becomes fairly popular. And who should so happen to read this book than a former casual acquaintance of hers, a man named William Godwin. Ooh, here we go. Here we go. He wrote of her book, if there was ever a book calculated to make a man fall in love with its author, this... (laughs) This what? (laughs) This appears to me to be the book. And he basically falls in love with her because of this book. And they become a like secret couple. So he's just as creepy as her. Kind of. He's like a clingy little friend. Kind of. He's kind of like a super fan. That's like, oh my gosh, like I fell in you in love with you because of your writing. And then they start this really long romantic correspondence. And it's, super hot and steamy and we still have all these letters actually um and even though they have the same friends group they kind of keep it on the lowdown um until mary gets pregnant again so despite both of them being very anti-marriage like they were both like we're never getting married the institution of marriage is like really messed up we're not dealing with that they tie the knot because mary was sick of having this terrible reputation so, <laughs> so remember that even though her and Emily never actually married, it was on the books that she was a married woman. So she's divorcee. So she said, well, I better get married for real this time so I don't look like a full-on adulteress. But it kind of had this really negative effect because when people learned that they weren't actually married and now she's marrying someone else, they're like, oh, but that means that Fanny is a bastard. And then everyone turns on this little girl because she, her parents weren't married when they had her. And her and God, Godwin actually lose a lot of friends because of this, because everything is like, they're like, we're done with you. You guys are too scandalous. You're too risque. We don't like it. They John Snowder. Yeah, they absolutely did. 
So she's hanging out, she's pregnant, and she's writing a lot of works, which unfortunately would never be finished. Because on August 30th, 1797, she gave birth to her second daughter and named her after herself, Mary. Mary. And it's also so cyclical that Mary and Fanny would then go on to be sisters and friends and also meet terrible fates together like their relationship was just as dramatic and like messed up as mary and fanny and unfortunately when mary gave birth the placenta broke apart and the doctor was also you know delivering the baby with very dirty hands and she got a horrible infection and after a very painful 10 days, she passed away on September 10th, 1797, at the age of 38. Oh. Godwin was devastated. He wrote to his friend, Thomas Holcroft, I firmly believe there does not exist her equal in the world. I know from experience we were formed to make each other happy. I have not the least expectation that I can now ever know happiness again. And then he marries another woman named Mary. Yeah, he does. <laughs> so, again, there's a lot of tragic irony in her death. Some people thought that she deserved it, saying, well, that's what you get for saying that, like, women are equal to men. And other people are because you know, they're like, oh, you're not even strong enough to give birth. And on the other side of things, some people are like, oh, she had just stuck to her principles of no marriage, and then this, this wouldn't have happened. happened. But... It's just like she can't win. She absolutely cannot win, even in death. So after her death, Godwin decides out of a tribute to Mary, he's going to publish a book about her. He's like, I want everyone to see how amazing and forward thinking she is. So he gathers up all of their correspondence, correspondence between her and Imlay, and like, all these really private things, and he calls it Memoirs of the Author of the Vindication of the Rights of Women. And again, he thought it was an act of love, but what ended up happening was people were like, this is what Mary was doing this whole time? Because it really laid out basically all her indiscretions. And people are not okay with it. It was really scandalous. People revolted at this book. It was like, I think, banned in some places. Oh, my and God. It ruined her reputation for a good, like, 200 years. Just absolutely destroyed her reputation. We like her now. We do like her now. Because feminists in, like, the 70s brought her back and were like, oh, my gosh, look at this. <laughs> and because it, people had to be okay with... You know, divorce, children out of wedlock, yeah. divorce, like marital sex. Yeah, There's a lot of things included. Yeah, exactly. So it just it really sucked. And I also I just want to talk about Fanny like we did in the Mary Shelley episode because this poor girl is now labeled as a bastard. She is not living with any of her real parents. She's living with her stepdad and then his new wife. So she feels super alone and stepsisters who are awful. She just feels so alone. And we know that her story ends up with her committing suicide the way that Mary initially intended by overdosing on laudanum. And Mary Shelley doesn't get there in time to save her. And it just is so tragic. So her book 
the vindication of the rights of women would go on to inspire generations of feminists, but we all know that her lasting legacy would be her second daughter, who would be known the world over as Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. But I hope that this story tells you that she is so much more than the mother of a famous author. The mother of a famous author. And that's Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> what a ride. I know. This woman. I mean, are you ready to compare them? I am ready. Ooh, because it is serious. It is. Okay. So we're going to get into it in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Hmm. I mean, they both had, from the get-go, moms with mental illness, which really shaped them. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's just you're reacting to your your childhood at some point and I know like Gloria Steinem said in an interview she said I in some ways I just think we're all born who we are and she's like I know it's a lot of nature versus nurture but at some point you are and I guess that's the nurture thing you are the environment you grow up in and these women are both like obvious like beacon posts to like how they grew up yeah and I feel like both of them in a weird way, like the injustices that they saw being done to their mothers really spurred them on to be like, this is not okay. Um, and the lack of education that both of them ugh. had was very interesting because, yeah. you know, Gloria Steinem is like, yeah, I didn't go to school, but I was like educated through experiences. And Mary is like, well, I need to start a school to give people what I never had. Because yeah. It's not fair. Well, exactly. And also I think both of them represent so well how kind of irritating is that we put so much weight on like, well, where did you go to school? How long did you go to school for? You know, was it Ivy League? Was it this? Was it that? And it's like both of these women did not have a traditional education in the least bit. No. And they still made such a huge impact and were noted as scholars i mean by writing yeah by writing is that the work of the feminist journalism and publishing periodicals like it's so funny that these two very maybe it's the only place where a women's voice could be heard Mm. at the same level on paper yes you're just as loud on paper yep and i also think that um you're right it's kind of an equalizing ground because you're like there are like certain things like, oh, well, this was on the front page. This was on mm-hmm. a byline. Da, 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 da. But ultimately, your work is printed. It's not like, well, yeah, you're going to be on TV, but you're going to be on at three o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. you know. And I also think that both of them probably at some point could have at least benefited from like the choice of anonymity mm-hmm. and then calling people out for like, well, you liked it now. Now that you know that I'm a woman, you don't like it. Like, what's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> like, I think when you put something in writing, you can easily point out hypocrisy in people's sayings. I agree. And I think they both, unfortunately, 200 years apart, are dealing with the same exact marriage, household, baby, work situation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, even though, like, people in Gloria Steinem's life were legally allowed to get divorced, they couldn't have their own credit cards. Yeah. They couldn't get their own loans. Yeah. And it's like, that's something Mary Wollstonecraft was working on years and years before that. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like they both, like, some of the things that Mary was writing were still such a problem when Gloria was alive. And they're just fighting for the same thing 200 years apart. And it's like, I just, I love there's, um you know, always someone in 
one of the many women's marches who has a sign that's like, we're still marching for like basic rights. Like yeah. what is going on? Yeah, And like, I mean, Fanny's guilt over leaving her baby is so much exactly the same thing that people are talking about with Gloria's abortion. Like, where is your guilt? Did you abandon that piece of your womanhood? Because mm-hmm. that's not okay. And also we have so, we have such a, um, like a broad, like so many broad examples of what, motherhood looks like in both of these stories Mm. and i feel like these stories validate whatever decision you have to make how mary absolutely wanted to be a mother and if she hadn't have died she would have been such a fantastic mother to little mary and she was a great mother to fanny when she was alive and then you have eliza who had to leave her baby who was already there because she was being abused and she couldn't take her. Right. And then you have Gloria who is like, no, motherhood is not the path I want to go on right now. So I'm choosing to end it. And all of them speak to the health of the woman. Yeah. And it's like, I'm putting myself first. You know what I'm saying? Even in Mary's like position, she said, even though I'm like, really depressed because of what Imlay is doing to me. Like I'm still going to put myself first in like caring for my kid because I still love her. Right. You know, and, and their reputations were oh destroyed. Oh my gosh. Both of them. Absolutely. And for, for different things. Obviously, Gloria Steinem's first one was being a bunny, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, you know, the same could be said for a woman who is having these tumultuous affairs that she's not supposed to have. They're yeah. both seen as like, you're having the sex that you're not allowed to be having. Well, it's so funny, too, because Mary only did have sex with two men, Emily and Godwin, and that was it. And she's seen as, like, this harlot of the century. And I feel like Gloria Steinem, like, I was expecting way more of, like, personal relationships. But there's really none. And yet she, I feel like she is also seen as this very, like, promiscuous woman just because of this one story. Yeah. And they both got the the blame the vent feminist vibe. yes absolutely. like oh well it's because she's so um out there that's why that happened to her that's why mary died in childbirth and the same thing yeah. happens to gloria like well you know you don't have to attack us because i want to stay home with my kids and she's like i never said that yeah that's not what i said <laughs> absolutely and i also i like how feminism has changed though from mary to gloria because I felt like Mary was very alone on her journey. Mm. You know, she had Jane, she had Fanny for a bit, but for the most part, she didn't have another feminist to kind of bounce ideas off of and work with. And Gloria, every step of the way, she's with these other prominent feminist thinkers that we know and love. And she has other women to kind of band together and learn from. And, I just I think that's a positive move for, you know, feminism from 200 years ago to now. And I mean, really, the goal was all the same. Let's attack injustice. Yeah. Such a cool. Wow. Oh, look how good we are. We did that quick. We I love did. it. Are you ready to uh, toast these women? I'm ready to toast. OK, so tonight I want to toast to the feminist that thinks they're not doing enough. Mm. I think um, Gloria Steinem came to the women's marches in 2016 and was on the streets as one of us. So stop feeling like you're not doing enough. 
showing up in small ways is enough. Teaching and setting examples for your kids is enough. Posting on social media is enough. Feminism comes in a lot of shapes and sizes and has many purposes and your angle is enough and we thank you for what you're doing for the movement. Mm. So you're enough. You don't have to be a Gloria Steinem to make a difference. I love it. Cheers. So cheers. And you? I am going to toast Mary and the other women who are more than just mothers. I feel like Mary Wollstonecraft was very, has been very overshadowed by Mary Shelley's story. And I feel like that's like the first thing that people think of. And I just, I want to cheers her because she didn't even know her daughter that she has been eclipsed by because right. unfortunately she died oh, after but she would have been so proud. She would have been so proud of mary she would have really tried to have an affair with percy Shelley, absolutely though. <laughs> or byron lord byron maybe so um cheers to her cheers okay you ready to promo things that are good I'm this week ready. what All are you right. enjoying so for a long time the last dance was not on netflix not save the last dance the literal Michael Jordan documentary, okay. The Last Dance. And I've been waiting and waiting because I really wanted to see it. And it's great because I was alive during the Bulls era. Mm-hmm. They're like rise to fame in their six championships, which is just fun to like, you know, sports, sports movies and documentaries are just fun. So if you're looking for something on Netflix that like you can just throw in an episode and it's like the first episode's all about Michael, and then the next episode's all about Scottie Pippen, and then the next one's all about Dennis Rodman. So, like, you start, it's everybody on the team, but it's all through Michael's lens, and they're all interviewed. So, it's really cool and worth a watch. Producer and I are, like, halfway through, so. Excellent. I really like it. All right. I am going to promote, um, even though I hate Facebook, this is, like, the one, like, positive little spot in facebook okay so it's a group called houseplant hobbyist and it's like they have succulents oh so many succulents but it's basically a group where people just from all over the world post pictures of their plants and they're like hey here's my plant isn't it beautiful and it'll get like 500 comments and people like i love your plant like (laughs) you're doing amazing or some i need that positivity in my life it's the most positive thing in the world and i just i love it so much and people will be like hey i don't think i'm taking care of this plant correctly what am i doing wrong and, and people be like, will be like i see the wilt on that left side yeah people are like mm. oh i think you have root rot you need to get it out this is exactly what you do but most recently so there was a guy who posted a picture of him and his orchid and it was a beautiful orchid but he wasn't wearing he has a sh- cancer. No, <laughs> but he wasn't wearing a shirt in the photo. He was just like, yeah, here's me and my orchid. I'm not wearing a shirt. And a ton of people attacked him and were claiming that he was like posting like pornography on the houseplant hobbyist page and the admin and other people sw- just swarmed into his defense. And they were like, okay, you know what? This guy did nothing wrong. He's beautiful. So now we're going to have body positivity week. And just all these people were posting photos of them naked with their plants. I love it. And it was just all sorts of people. And there was one that was like an older couple that were like, 
you know, we're in our 70s and we like met like recently on like online dating, but we love each other. And like these are our bodies and these are our plants. And then there's one woman who's like, this is me in my bathing suit because I'm still not comfortable with like, you know, my scars from my C-section. But I still love my, you know, this plants. group and my plants. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'm like going through it and I'm like crying. I'm like, oh my gosh, like people are so great and their plants are so nice. And like, and it's just this pool of positivity and people supporting each other. And I just love that the admins weren't like, yeah, we'll take it down. They were like, no, you know what? Everybody post their photos because this is not what this group is about. We I are love about it. uplifting people and empowering people and plants. We're not that funny, Caroline. We're really not. <laughs> Our daughters are snickering. <laughs> My one daughter's snickering. My other one's keeping a straight face. So I love it. I think that I'm going to go join that group. You should. Because I'm about to have a solarium. You are. Maybe I will help soon. you fill it. We'll see. My solarium, is, ever get that my solarium is popping off and it's Can't really wait. exciting. So yeah, go look at that. Um, yeah. And thank you for listening. Seriously. Find us everywhere. We're available on all the places. All the places. Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Gmail. It's just we have all a over website. the place. We have a website somewhere. <laughs> um, so join, our story. <laughs> join us every Tuesday for Cocktail Tuesday so you know mm. what to drink. Thank you, Miss Krista, for making so many of our cocktails. It's so nice. We love it. And thank you so much for the really nice review we got LC Marshall 95. Thank you. So it sweet. was so lovely and we so appreciate it. And we just... Thank you for joining us for now six seasons of Herstory on the Rocks. We've done it. We've done it. So we'll see you next season. And never forget that well-behaved women don't have podcasts. (laughs) And they rarely make history. Bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.